Welcome to Ghosts Were People Too, a podcast that investigates ghosts through the lens of the arts and humanities. I'm Quest. And I'm Annabelle. In our last couple episodes, we've looked into some foundational topics for discussing cultural depictions of the dearly departed. We've delved into monster theory, the gothic, abjection, 19th century spiritualism, and spirit photography. With all of that out of the way, we are finally ready to make contact with the other side of our topic. This is going to be an exciting episode for us, and we hope you're excited too, because we are turning our attention to our first portrayal of ghosts in media. Dim the lights, pour yourself a dry martini, and make your mind a blank as we turn our planchettes toward Noel Coward's 1941 play, Blythe Spirit. If you have not seen Blythe Spirit, you absolutely should, or you should go read the script, because it's wonderful. But you should also know that we are going to be talking in detail about many aspects of the plot, including how it ends. And so this is a little spoiler warning. Uh, You do you. I don't think that this episode will ruin your experience reading or viewing the play or any of the movies that we're going to talk about. But if you know yourself and you just can't stand a spoiler then maybe go experience this play in whatever way you will before you listen. In order to present you with a workable synopsis, we're going to go over the Dramatis Personae. So our characters at hand are Charles Condamine, which I just, it always drives me crazy that the first two syllables of that are condom. Uh, It's a terrible name. I mean, and we'll let's get into, be honest. I'm very excited <laughs> to talk about another terrible name later on. Oh, there are going to be a lot of terrible things that we're going to talk about in the very near future. So Charles is aged about 40. He is an author of mystery novels. He's smart-mouthed, often to his own detriment. He has a very superior attitude. He often has... Is, he often has a tendency to be flippant or catty, and he is a widower. We also have Ruth Condamine. Um, she is in her mid-30s. This is the wife, the second wife of Charles, and she is the woman of the house. Um, very, well, different actresses play her in different ways, but I think in the script, to me, she comes across as a mature, um, sort of well-matched to Charles in a lot of ways, because she can quip with him. Um, and she's been married before as well. And so they they sort of balance each other out in a lot of ways. I like that description, because one of the things I was reading described her as dull-witted, and I didn't really Oh, like no, that. I think she's very snappy. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. So next, our more minor characters are Dr. Bradman, a middle-aged man generally work-minded. He's a bit of a fuddy-duddy. And his wife, Mrs. Bradman, she's also the same age. Uh, I would say she's a bit of a busybody. She's kind of nosy, but she also doesn't have a lot to do. She's written a little bit vapid. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And then, oh ho ho. The showstopper. Madame Arcadi. So this is the medium. She's probably somewhere between the age of 45 to 65. She is particular and peculiar, eccentric, easily excited, and quite defensive of her craft. Madame Arcadi is definitely a comedic figure, although sometimes she's played quite seriously. (laughs) We'll talk about it. 
And there's also a profundity in her silliness. Definitely. Yeah, maybe maybe that's a better way of putting it. Um, but I think, again, different actresses have... We don't say actress anymore, do we? We say actor. I say actor gender neutral, but some people like to say actress. Okay. Well, I'm going to go for actors. Um, we won't be backwards around here. Different actors play her differently, and we will discuss that when we get to the movies. We have Edith, who is probably younger than the rest of the cast. It's not specified. She is a recently hired maid at the Condomine household. She's a novice. She's also rather excitable, and she is not particularly competent. She is constantly being told to slow down. She's running through the hallways. Love her. Edith, we love her. Okay. (laughs) And how can we forget perhaps the most thrilling character... Our ghost, Elvira. Um, Elvira is the first wife of Charles, and she is considerably younger than the other characters because she died uh, several years ago. I think five years, uh, seven, seven, yeah. seven years um, before the play takes place. Um, she is. <laughs> she is a a character. She has a lot of personality. She can be bratty, but she's also very romantic. She is jealous. Well, I really think you might be a little more pleased to see me. After all, you conjured me up. I didn't do any such thing. Nonsense, of course you did. That awful child with the cold came and told me that you wanted to see me urgently. She seems to have a lot of power over Charles and attempts to manipulate him quite a bit. Yeah. I think she knows her strength. You know, she's kind of a vamp sometimes. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think that is exaggerated. She's almost a, a, a caricature in, in a certain way of the sexy younger wife. Yeah. But she's, it's not, she's not flat. Um, like it's, that it's not, it's not all she is, but that's definitely what she is playing as as a ghost she's playing off of that vampy film noir yeah kind of uh, sexy powerful woman so now that you know who is in play let's get into the play will you take us into Ah, act one i shall as research for his upcoming novel charles condamine has planned a dinner party featuring a seance by a local medium madame arcati Despite the skepticism of all the guests in attendance, the seance successfully conjures the ghost of Charles's first wife, Elvira. Only Charles can see Elvira, causing his second wife, Ruth, to fear for his sanity, of course, until Elvira performs some spectral, pho- some spectral phenomena to prove her existence. Elvira, then it's true. It, it was you. Of course it was. Charles, darling, Charles, what are you talking about? Are you a a ghost? I suppose I must be. It's all very confusing. What do you keep looking over there for? Look at me. What's happened? Don't you see? See what? Elvira. Elvira? In Act 2, Elvira's reappearance causes latent tensions in Charles and Ruth's marriage to resurface, 
When Ruth meets with Madame Arcadi in hopes of conducting an exorcism, she reveals Charles's trickery and angers the spiritualist. Elvira makes several attempts on Charles's life in hopes of forcing him to join her in the afterlife, but Ruth gets caught in the crossfire and perishes in an automobile accident. And in our final act, Charles and Madame Arcadi repeatedly try to exorcise the spirits of Ruth and Elvira until it is revealed that their new maid, Edith, has latent mediumistic prowess. They banish the spirits, though Madame Arcadi warns Charles to take his leave from the still-haunted house. So, Quest, why don't you tell us a little bit about the playwright? All right. So, Noel Coward was born in 1899, died in 1973. He was an English playwright and theater person best known for his works Hay Fever, Private Lives, Design for Living, and Blythe Spirit. His family was poor, and he found employment in the theater as a boy actor at age 14, which led to a life immersed in theatrical, bohemian, and generally queer circles. His works are perhaps best known for their sharp wit, biting humor, and clever use of language. Coward's homosexuality was essentially an open secret, though he never publicly identified as gay in his lifetime. His style and sensibility were unmistakably queer, even if his works never dealt with his queerness in an overt manner. I've actually read a couple of things that were discussing that he even got a certain amount of like social currency out of being gay. It was kind of that like, ooh, you saw Noel Coward? What was he wearing? What did he say? Was he the life of the party? <sighs> even though nobody was going to mention what the, the it factor was behind that and it seems like that is a pretty common thing with writers of his generation there are a lot of writers who were known in their circles to be queer but obviously there was no mainstream way to embrace that identity other than like it went no further than kind of the wink wink nudge nudge right one of the attitude. quotes that i was reading about this had a whole list of people who fit into this category i remember that cole porter was one of the other mm. ones they were talking about in yeah. this same kind of niche yeah and we are going to talk later in this podcast about the queer implications of the text queer subtext I think that's what you yeah. would call it not just because of the writer's identity but because this is, in many ways, a play that critiques marriage and relationships, and uh, we got to talk about it. <laughs> yeah, and I also want to say that I have a personal history with Blythe Spirit. Several years ago, when we were teenagers, Annabelle and I actually went to see a production of it with one of my aunts playing the role of Ruth. Um, and then when I got into college and I started directing shows, the first show I wanted to direct was Blythe Spirit. And I wrote a proposal to the student-run theater company, and they accepted my proposal, and then we found out we couldn't get the rights. Because oh. there was a touring production that was coming to San Francisco that was within the radius of um, how many miles two productions can have the rights in. There's a like the idea that if they have too close of proximity they'll be competing productions right it's like what they call a radius clause uh for musicians as well okay yeah. so i had to find another show to do which we will talk about someday in yes. a different form 
And this led to my lifelong blood feud with Angela Lansbury because <laughs> the rights holders decided that this university production would somehow be competition with Angela Lansbury touring I mean, as Madame Arcati. I mean, when you read the reviews of that production, they may not have been wrong. This is Quest coming to you from the editing room. On October 11th, 2022, the incredible actress Angela Lansbury passed away. That was after we recorded this episode. She was an amazing star of stage and screen, and everything we are saying about her is obviously as a joke. Her memory will be a blessing to all of us. We're already throwing shade and we're only like 10 minutes into this podcast. <laughs> you know, I didn't even think about it until right now how shade is another name for a ghost. <laughs> shade will be thrown and you're going to love it. Girl, the shade, the shade of it all. Let's get deeper into this shade because <sighs> you watched the movies, the film adaptations, and I did not. That's right. And you know that I had so many feelings, particularly about the 2020 movie. I had so many feelings that I texted you and then we had to have a phone call about it. And I had to stop myself myself from point by point reading you my notes. And I think I was only about 20 minutes in yeah, to, like to the that, 2020 film. Um, but whew, I have some, some things to so say. This is, this is going to be hot and fresh. Hot and fresh takes. I think it's interesting to talk about movie adaptations of this play because I think the differences between these adaptations, one was made in 1945 and one was made in 2020, say a lot about the content of the original play because personally, I've always felt like you can learn a lot from something going wrong. Um, that's not to say that there aren't some wonderful things about at least one of these movies. Um, <laughs> but I, I think it's instructive to talk about things that went badly so that you can find what's so amazing about the original text. Um, so with all that being said, uh, in 1945, a movie starring Rex Harrison, Constance Cummings, Kay Hammond, and Margaret Rutherford was made of Blythe Spirit. It's entitled Blythe Spirit. And the actors in this version are cast quite a bit younger in the film than the, in the original stage cast. Um, and then the descriptions of the characters in the original script. Rex Harrison is was considered by critics to be a much more dashing version of the character of Charles. Um, he is less of a stuffy sort of struggling writer and more of a witty, handsome man in the midst of his career. Like that, that's the feeling that you get. Um, have you seen this film? I can't remember. No. Okay. Okay. This movie was, Challenging to make, not because it was a difficult script or... A haunted set? No, none of these things were a problem. 
the problem was that nobody in the production really wanted to do it. <laughs> so um, I watched this interview with Barry Day, who is a Noel Coward uh, biographer. And it's this interview on the uh, Criterion Collection streaming service. And he talks about how several of the actors were really reluctant to take the roles, including Rex Harrison. Margaret Rutherford, who played Madame Arcati, actually had to be convinced to join the cast because, get this, she was a spiritualist herself, and she did not like that the play seemed to make fun of mediums. I love this. So the director had to take her out for drinks, get her a little tipsy, and convince her that the play was not making fun of all mediums. It was making fun of bad mediums. Hashtag not all mediums. <laughs> this kind of sounds familiar, right? I'd like. The, I feel like this is a pretty common argument surrounding mediums. Like, there are some bad ones. There are some fakes. But some of them are good eggs, and you just haven't found them yet. So, her comment as she begrudgingly took the role, was, oh, well, it's not a comedy. It's definitely a tragic story then. But she agreed to be in the film. And just to add to all of this, the director wasn't particularly excited to make this movie either. He was not really interested in the project. And so Barry Day, the, the biographer who I mentioned earlier, was talking about how he thinks that David Lean... Is it Lean? I think it's Lean. I have no idea. Okay. Shit. He thinks that the director neglected to contribute much of his own creativity to the project, and that resulted in a movie that in some ways lacks intimacy, feels kind of stale or removed, because there isn't really much cinematic art to it. Um, it was kind of, for lack of a better word, half-assed. Um, now, that's not to say that Barry Day or I hate this movie. He and I agree on the point that it's actually a pretty charming production. Um, I think that all of the actors play their roles very well. And it's generally faithful to the original script, which is nice because it is really well written. Like, there's really no reason to mess with it. And I say this, and I kind of, you know, I'm pushing this point because the 2020 version... is going to be a different story. A totally no different pun story. Intended. Yes. I'd just like to say also that one of the approaches of directing that I use as a stage director comes from William Ball. And he says mm -hmm. that there are five things that you can focus on in a production. Character, language, plot, moral, and spectacle. And I would say that almost any Noel Coward play, the number one thing you're going to want to focus on is going to be the language. Right. So that's the thing that you really do want to keep intact because that is where so much of his genius lies. Like, there are spectacles in this. There is a wonderful plot. There are cool characters who are, like, fun and fleshed out and so on and so forth. But the language is really the shining star. Yeah, and I think... Like Noel Coward's writing, this film doesn't coddle the audience, doesn't assume that they 
uh, or it, it assumes that they are intelligent and witty enough to keep up with what's going on and to, to pick up on the subtleties of the various relationships and, and characters. And I think that's what makes it so fun. Would you say that it feels like a filmed play? In a lot of ways, yes. Because um, that's such a convention of this era of film. Like yeah. so many great films of this period. I'm thinking The Women, Arsenic and Old Lace, yes. All About Eve are just stage plays brought onto film with typically with even the original cast and like very little changed. And um, the actress who plays Elvira in this version, whose name escapes me, um, we can open. use ye old Google. Uh, ye old Wikipedia. Ye old Wikipedia. Um, but Kay Hammond. Kay Hammond. So she was in stage productions of Blythe Spirit. And um, I left this out purposely from my notes because I thought it was kind of a misogynistic comment but Barry Day talks about how she kind of falls flat as Elvira in this movie because she's not as beautiful as Ruth um, and how she plays better on stage than on screen up close um, which I do not agree with I, I think that she's wonderful and I, I think that it, it. I think you're right it very much does have that play on film feel that many movies that were contemporary to it have. But you were alluding to that some things were changed about the script from the stage script. Yes. There's something about the ending of this play that none of the films can deal with. They, 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 (laughs) is that a weird way to say it? No, I just, it is something that both I can relate to and also not relate to. Okay. So this is, probably due to film codes i actually don't know whether in england the hayes code was the code but they had code right the hayes code would only apply to distribution in the united states but since that was such a huge part of the film market you would want it to be approved right yeah and and whether or not there were codes they're definitely was a social expectation in England that there would be some sort of moral structure to cinema. If you know the story, which we just told you, you might be thinking like, <laughs> what is amoral about the ending of this play? You know, the, the women turn into ghosts, uh, Charles escape, <laughs> turn into ghosts. <laughs> You know, it's a transformation. Detroit become ghost. (laughs) They pass over to the other side. Um, The women both die. Well, actually, I mean, the end, they're already dead. The women get exercised. Sorry, I don't mean to be a stickler. (laughs) Please. Uh, you're, You're revealing the way that we talk about death in America, which I am subject to as well. Um, Okay, so in the play... It ends with the now invisible Ruth and Elvira. Um, they've they've been exercised, but they're still he can't, Charles can't see them, but they're still present. The they're house. still haunting the house, and they're throwing objects around the house, presumably bickering with each other over the things that Charles is saying as he makes his escape. In the movie, 
the invisible wives are helping Charles put on his coat and <laughs> Quest is already reacting. Wincing. He's visibly cringing. Um, they're helping him put on his coat, pack the car as he leaves. That's a little strange. Why do they want him to go? Well, as he drives away, they're watching him drive off. They're sitting together on this picturesque bridge and the car crashes. The two wives scoot over to make room for him in the middle, uh, sort of like when you're on the Haunted Mansion ride and you make room for the the hitchhiking ghost. ghost. Yeah, like that. They, so they scoot aside and make room for him in the middle and the bewildered ghost of Charles sits between them like, oh, darn, they got me and uh, fade to black. Do you want to give a guess as to why the ending was changed to be more moralistic or more to code? I don't see how that is moralistic. I don't see how it's more moral to kill him off. I don't like, cause I do know things about the Hayes code and I've read yeah. things about what the code was in the UK. Uh huh. And it's hard for me to make this coexist with everything that I do know. Oh, you're just built different. Yeah. <laughs> well, so this is this is the rationale that I have. Rationalize me, baby. This is what I found. So it would have been seen as immoral for Charles to walk away and leave his wives to fight with each other while he remains unscathed. So... This is sort of like that good old-fashioned Christian, even Stevens morality. Eye for an eye. Right. Charles needs to be punished for what he has done to his wives. He needs to end on the same level as them, which in this case means baffled and dead. <laughs> the one thing that I will say that I do like about it is that I I want to talk about this more later, but I do have trouble with Charles being our protagonist because, you know, you have that expectation that you should agree with and root for the protagonist, which right. very clearly is not, I think, the point. And yeah. so his final monologue is just rather hard to contend with like the rest of it kind of felt like oh it's period whatever mm -hmm. and then i got to that the first time and i was like because i was reading it also with the intention of directing it and i was like how am i gonna ever put up <laughs> with this yeah um but i also think that it does work nicely from a setup and payoff perspective that we know that elvira had rigged the car to kill him earlier mm -hmm. and it didn't work the first time and so if you read into it that either of the ghosts had something to do with the car crash then i kind of like that idea but that's kind of like where it ends for me yeah i, I agree i've never been a stickler for liking the characters even protagonists in any story, um, I think in a lot of ways, it's, it's a play that invites you to contemplate 
life and contemplate why the characters act the way they do more so than root for Charles. But I do agree that you are supposed to be excited that he's escaped. And there is a part of me that feels satisfied by that ending. And I think it is because of the narrative arc. It does feel like a nice, clean way to end it, even though it really puts a damper on the idea of a relationship, a romantic relationship. Right. I mean, I guess that Margaret Rutherford was right. It is kind of a tragedy now. Right. (laughs) But that being said, you are going to absolutely love the 2020 ending if you like the revenge uh, aspect of things. Okay. Um, Is that the only thing I'm going to love about it? Oh, there's so much to love. All right, lay it on me. Okay, so I thought the best way to introduce Blythe Spirit 2020 was to read an excerpt from Guy Lodge's Variety Magazine review because it is just scathing and so, so aligned with my feelings. When I tell you that I had trouble getting through this movie... I mean that I was watching it in 15-minute increments because I got so annoyed that I had to walk away multiple times. I may have skipped through a couple of scenes in the middle. (laughs) Um, But that being said, here's Guy Lodge's review, um, an excerpt. You've been commissioned to write a 90-page screenplay, not War and Peace. With these airy words in the opening minutes of Blythe Spirit, exasperated trophy wife... Ruth, Isla Fisher, admonishes her first-time screenwriter husband, Charles, Dan Stevens, as he twitchily battles writer's block. Then she adds a kicker. How can it be so difficult to adapt a story you've already written? If her frustration with the whiny, self-absorbed Charles is hardly misplaced, her assumptions about screenwriting are nonetheless off-base. Penning a good, short, pithy screenplay is no easy feat, even when working from solidly proven source material. And one need look no further than Blythe Spirit, a tin-eared, lumpen-footed, almost perversely unfunny new spin on Noel Coward's breezy 1940s farce for proof. (laughs) What I really like about both of these movies, as somebody who has not watched them, is that they're both a masterclass on how not to make a movie. Like, even if the 45 (laughs) one comes out decent, you take a good script, give it to a director who doesn't want it, cast a lead actor who doesn't want it, give the most pivotal role to an actor who has to be convinced into it. Uh Uh-huh. Like... Oh, and I forgot to mention, by the way, that Rex Harrison did not like the actor who played Madame Arcati. And Margaret found, Rutherford. Yes. He found her completely irritating and insufferable. And so in every scene, he's just putting up with her performance, even though audiences across the board gave her the most accolades when the film came out. That's really something. Yeah. I do believe that she was in one of the stage productions. It's possible. I don't. I don't know because I'm pretty sure I've sure. seen a picture of her actually. Yeah, and she it. and she's wonderful. She she kills it. I think it's 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 great that 
actually that she had some interest in spiritualism and had some belief in the practice because I think it adds some subtlety to the character who is not a very subtle character who is a pretty over-the-top character. Speaking of subtlety or a lack thereof, I want to talk about the characters first in the 2020 version and then I want to talk about all of the crash and burn attempts at modernizing this production. Funny enough, this movie actually takes place in the 1930s, so they're going back in time, but they're trying to impose a contemporary, I'm going to say it, wokeness. (laughs) They're trying to impose a contemporary wokeness that feels so sloppy and so forced that it's painful. So we're, we're going to talk about that. If Rex Harrison is like the dashing version of Charles, then Dan Stevens is like the bumbling fool version of Charles. He, I think, intentionally is made to be extremely annoying and unlikable. And there's a reason for that, which we will get to in a moment. We meet him in his study. He is obsessively trying to write his screenplay. It's leaning really heavily on that struggling artist trope, which I already find kind of tiresome. He's in his room writing, agonizing over his work. At one point, he glances at a gun that's in the room as if he's thinking about um, using it. Maybe there's our trigger. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) trigger warning. Good pun. So he glances at a nearby gun as if he's going to use it on himself because he can't write this screenplay. And then he picks up an old picture of Elvira and is pining over it, kind of suggesting that she was his muse. And now that she's gone, he can't write. He seems to be the trouble, old chap. I've been commissioned to adapt my novel for the screen. But the words have dried up. It's not a coincidence that you haven't published a word since my demise. So it's all very exaggerated and over the top. Isla Fisher plays an exasperated Ruth who responds to Charles's behavior with the following clunky sentiment. I miss you. I miss us. That's like the opposite of the character. And he's like, I miss us too. That's the opposite of both the characters. Yeah. So that happens. Um, (laughs) And like I was saying, there's an attempt, and I I think this is one of those attempts, like this is like a very familiar contemporary way of telling your spouse (laughs) that you feel... Blythe Spirit if written by Nicholas Sparks. For real though, like, you know, you're trying to tell your spouse that they're starting to drift away from you, and so you say, I miss us. It's kind of giving me... um, what is it? Persuasion? Have you heard about this? Is it It is. That's it is. yeah, the newest. Yeah. It, it's kind of giving me like Netflix persuasion vibes, which costuming and historical clothing YouTube has been just shitting all over lately. Tearing to shreds. Tearing to shreds. There's this really heavy-handed attempt to modernize the story while still making it period, although not very not very successfully. <laughs> As Guy Lodge, our wonderful variety reviewer, comments, these changes pretty much 
only serve to make the original play seem more relevant and timely. They're trying to modernize it, but ironically, you just end up thinking the original just it 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 still hits and this misses the mark. Let's talk about one modernization attempt. Right away there is a more blatant discussion of sex in this movie. In my opinion, it's really at the expense of any subtlety. For example, and this is one of the things that I called Quest to complain about, Mrs. Bradman says to Ruth, and I quote, Leave him to worry about the words and find someone else to shake your sheets. Oh, come on, don't be a prude. One must be practical for a marriage to run the course. Which not only sounds like a very clunky attempt at 1930s-style dialogue, but also... What? I don't even have anything intelligent to say about this other than WTF, which is what my notes said over and over again. I do like... I mean, I hate the expression, shake the sheets, but it does make me think of sheet ghosts. So, (laughs) you know. Okay, sure, sure. I, I mean... You can see the attempt. It's a, it's a very transparent attempt at, oh, the women are really talking about sexuality. They're open with each other. And I'm sure, in reality, conversations like this were going on at the time. But it just feels so... It's, it's ham-fisted. It, it's hitting you over the head. And it's also... I mean, my problem that I'm having with this, hearing about it, like, I I know we don't need to be too beholden to the story as told. Mm -hmm. I try to give room for adaptation. Right. But this is not a conflict in the original script. And what is really potent about a lot of Coward's works is that the couples think that they are functional and learn that they are dysfunctional. And all of that subtlety coming to the surface through the appearance of Elvira's ghost is thrown out the window to make it very obvious that there's a strain on their marriage. Right. So in in Coward's script, in Coward's play, it feels as though Ruth and Charles have a pretty successful marriage. Um, They seem to be close. They have uh, a rapport they're well matched. Yeah, and in the 2020 film adaptation, they add all of these conflicts that make it abundantly clear that they are not well matched, that they their marriage is not a very successful one and that they're both rather unhappy in the marriage. It's a strange addition. I don't I, one of my major complaints about this adaptation is that I don't think that the screenplay respects the viewers. I think that it treats us like we are not smart enough to understand the subtleties of a marriage unless we see a really obvious conflict like, oh, our sex life isn't very good, and they're they're blatantly talking about it. And this is just one of the many times where the writers felt like they needed to hit you over the head with the uh, problems of the marriage so that you would understand why uh, Charles might be interested in Elvira. 
Now, it's not just Mrs. Bradman and Ruth talking about sex, though. I couldn't bear to quote this part, but I will tell you that right after the scene with Ruth uh, talking to Mrs. Bradman about shaking the sheets, uh, Charles tells Mr. Bradman uh, in just awful euphemisms that he not only has writer's block, but he can't maintain an erection. And so Bradman gives him benzedrine sulfate to put some, quote, fuel back in his tank, end quote. You know, I don't know why you think that this doesn't respect the audience. I mean, you know, it's edgy, it's sex and drugs, you know, it's like reality. people in the 30s had penises, some of them. Yeah, and some people in the 30s could not maintain an erection without uppers. So. Woo! And so another modernization attempt comes with Madame Arcati, who I haven't even mentioned, is played by Judy Dench. And Judy Dench you would think, could save almost anything. Unfortunately, because she is one of the most accomplished actors in this film, everything feels wrong about her performance. She, strangely enough, plays this role really seriously and really straight. And it's not just Judy Dench doing this. It, it's written into the script. We get this whole backstory, or rather side story about how Madame Arcati is trying to contact her long-lost soldier lover. She has this picture, this daguerreotype of him in his uniform, and she's trying to talk to him, but she hasn't been successful, and so she's yearning for a connection. But because she's not a very good medium, she hasn't yet been able to make that connection. And so she's very serious... She's trying really hard. And it's really funny, actually, because in the original, Madame Arcati is the comic relief. She is the absurd character. And I feel like in this adaptation, she's the serious character, and all of the others are absurd and ridiculous, and you want to laugh at them while you're supposed to feel sympathy for her. Now, I was thinking perhaps the reason this happened was because the writers felt like the attitude towards mediums and spiritualists was more sympathetic today than maybe it had been in the past. And like audiences might not respect a film that made fun of someone who was trying to do their craft I mean, hashtag witch. <laughs> I don't know what the hashtag would be. I mean, like, Tumblr witches, the, you know, witchy online communities. I, I feel like calling yourself a witch is a pretty common thing these days. And so maybe they felt like it wouldn't land if she was a joke. But it's weird. Well... <laughs> also, a thing that, like, really doesn't work about that is that she is wronged. In the play, the mm -hmm. Condamines and the Bradfords lie to her 
in order to use her craft for Charles's and Ruth's own financial gain. So that still happens. Right. But all I'm saying is that, like, it's just one of those things where you're making a problem where one didn't exist before. Right. We're supposed to feel sympathy for Madame Arcati, even if she is a little bit woo-woo and ridiculous. Right. And also, like, Coward is writing this, like... Every one of his characters is a clown in some way or other. Nobody is respectable. Mm -hmm. But uh, in inverse, the characters who are not respectable can still hold sympathy. And so when you find necessary to add this tragic backstory to this character, it just, again, it shows that you don't have faith in the script performing its own job. Well, you know, there's nothing I hate more than an additional tragic backstory. It's one of my major pet peeves. Like you said, it really shows a disrespect for the audience and their ability to follow the emotional currents of the film. And uh, they definitely do this here. I mean, perhaps rather than thinking that the audience wouldn't like if she were made fun of, maybe they thought that the audience would be angry that she was a hack and they, that they would need a little bit of help to feel feelings for her. And I say that because we meet Madame Arcati not when she comes to the house for the seance, but on a big stage where she is performing magical acts in front of a large audience. And that is where they first find out about her. And that is where Charles approaches her after the show. Um, after a, <laughs> she falls from a great height after being pulled up by strings to float through the theater and gets hurt. And they stop the show early and Charles goes back to talk to her. And he is like this mega skeptic. <laughs> there, there, there's a moment when they're in the theater And one of the performers says, is there life after death? And Charles, under his breath, goes, no. (laughs) So (laughs) Charles goes back and kind of barges in on Madame Arcati, who's recovering from having fallen from a great height. And she's laying on her back. And he invites her to do a seance at his home on the grounds that it will be good for publicity because she could get in with some people in high society and perhaps be in the newspapers as someone who's not a hack. I want to scream. I know. There's so much. There's... I also like want to stop recording, grab a Ouija board, get Coward to <laughs> haunt the shit out of everyone on production for this. Like, what the hell? That That Variety article that I keep referencing ends by saying that he hopes there is no life after death and that Noel Coward has no idea that this was made. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. So I, I have so many problems <laughs> with this whole Madame Marcotti production. But something that really bothers me, again, with the lack of subtlety, Charles's extreme skepticism mixed with him making some sort of deal with Madame Arcati that, you know, he can fix her reputation, just removes that element of open skepticism 
that makes the original play so wonderful you don't get you get the feeling that the characters are kind of like hee hee i don't know if a seance is like i don't think i believe but we'll see what happens and there's something charming about that and this version version of charles is so cynical and so flippant about the whole thing that it just makes him look like a terrible person and it removes any sympathy that I would have for him as a viewer. And so when he gets haunted, I'm just like, yeah, dude, live with it. You just reap what you sow. What, yeah. Play stupid games, win stupid prizes. Right. Well, well in the play, I feel like Charles, you dumb idiot. I can't, you, you, you didn't, you weren't willing to be in touch with your emotions. You weren't willing to speak up about, you, you were too shy too embarrassed to say something about your ex-wife in front of your current wife, too too constrained by social uh, expectations, and look what you got yourself into. That that was the feeling that I had towards Charles when I read the play. And here I'm just thinking, God, this guy is so icky. I hope he gets what he deserves, which he does. Um, so let me wrap up this discussion of the 2020 Blythe Spirit, with a discussion of the ending, which is very much wrapped up in this super, super sloppy feminist rewrite of this play. Now, I I have to say, although I think, looking back on it, there are some problematic elements uh, of the script... I did not initially see Blythe Spirit and think, oh, geez, so old-fashioned, so backwards. I thought it was much more subtle and interesting than that. And I think there's more room to investigate gender roles in the original play than one might expect from something written at that time. That being said, (laughs) I didn't need this. (laughs) So... I already talked about how I think Charles is just this over-the-top caricature that audiences want to see suffer. Again and again, you see him getting into these situations where Elvira's talking to him and he's talking to her, but he ends up insulting someone in front of him. After the third or fourth time it happens, you're going, are, are you so lacking in self-awareness that you don't know what you sound like right now. Like it happens a couple times in the play, but only between him and his wife. Right. Um, It happens when Dr. Bradford is there too, oh, but right, it's right. not exactly offensive. And that's when he's getting like treated for the possibility of like being, being mentally unwell. He's so in his own home too, which I think has a different, Okay, so they're expanding these into new circumstances. He goes to the movie studio and ends up losing his opportunity with the script because he insults women and in the in the studio. And it, it, it again and again, it happens in various situations in his life. And he just looks so foolish. It would never be that extreme. Honestly, I can't even see someone in that situation leaving the house. The character's also very self-centered. He's a liar. He's talentless. 
and secretly obsessed with his dead wife. And when I say talentless, I mean when Elvira comes to haunt him, she starts to help him with his screenplay, and you begin to realize that she has dictated all of his novels to him. He's not actually a writer. I, I mean, have... he, he's been take, she's been telling him what to write, and he has been publishing those books under his own name. And she's super aware of it, like, oh, you would never have the career that you have if it weren't for me. Aren't you glad I'm back? And then she's also kind of coming on to him while this is happening. There is a comment in the play about one of his wives helping him. Mm -hmm. And if I recall correctly, the comment is that Elvira didn't do anything when he was writing. That where Ruth is actually invested in him writing, Elvira kind of didn't give a shit. Well, it gives her complexity, right? If she also was not a stellar wife. And and she has motives for that, right? She She maybe feels constrained or bored or unsatisfied in some way with the relationship. And so she's going off and doing whatever and, and trying to be a, a young person having fun and possibly that involves infidelity. But this version of Elvira is like this devoted wife who is secretly doing everything <laughs> kind of like um, our friend... Uh, uh, the the Edith. spirit photographer, oh. um, Mumler. I, I mean, it, it's it's actually funny that this uh, narrative comes up because obviously there have been tons of talented women whose husbands have put their name on the work that was a collaboration. But there's again this heavy-handed approach to showing her power and showing how much better she is than him. And so it just kind of falls flat. What's well, also interesting, because it does mirror the plot with Arcadia and Edith. Yes. That one person is the one that we think has the talent, but actually somebody else did the whole time. And I don't see what is gained through creating a second version of that plot in the same you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I do. I, it also... It, it makes me wonder what commentary there still is on marriage in this version of uh, Blythe Spirit. Because I feel like... I feel like that's just kind of thrown out. I mean, what is it saying? It's saying that people sometimes marry each other even though they don't like each other like that, that I, I i don't know it, it just does it, it there is it's hard to critique and analyze because it is so heavy-handed in what it is trying to tell us and in this case what it's trying to tell us is that charles is a terrible man who lies and takes credit for the women in his life and uh he deserves to die so let me tell you about the ending <laughs> okay much like the original it ends with edith helping to exercise the spirits of, of ruth and elvira there's a little added madame arcadi gets to take a little stroll with her uh ghostly uh lover 
in, in uniform. So that happens. And uh, we have a little two months later card and Charles is helping to produce the movie that he wrote, or rather that Elvira wrote, when a Los Angeles Times reporter approaches him and he thinks that she wants to interview him about his excellent new project. And he's served a subpoena by someone who is creeping up behind her. And she says, I love to interview you about all of the books that you've plagiarized and tells him that all of the novels he's written have been plagiarized from some Mexican book series. And then Elvira shows up and is like, ha ha, gotcha. I stole all those ideas from this other book series. Now I'm coming at you from the grave. You're going to be sued. And then... (laughs) There's more? There's more. It doesn't end there. It doesn't end there. Elvira starts sarcastically singing always at him as he runs away out of the studio. And then Ruth drives up in a car and hits him with it. To which he says, oh my gosh, you almost killed me. And she replies, I did kill you. And he looks over and his body's on the ground. And she says, no one will ever forget you, Charles. And then Elvira jumps into the car and says, they'll remember what a fraud you were. And Ruth says, always. And then they drive away together laughing. The end. Gaslight, gatekeep, <laughs> ghost boss. <laughs> so uh, the women win in uh, this feminist retelling of Blythe Spirit 2020. <laughs> it's a lot to process. I... I am at a loss for words because so she's been I mean here's where my mind is going. Elvira has been planning this since she was alive because I mean she the the, the weird thing is this means she actually doesn't have any literary and any more literary skills than he does because she's been plagiarizing all of these stories herself which like to me puts a little bit of a damper on the empowerment but also in the play it seems like elvira shows up by chance but also because there's some sort of uh lingering romantic feelings when the seance occurs and so that's what calls her into charles's life neither one of them were planning on it neither one of them she was she filed paperwork in the ghost bureaucracy right to come back but she didn't think it was going to happen anytime soon it kind of she was playing chess with genghis khan yeah so (laughs) she she kind of goes oh okay i'm back great and and she misses him and and wants him still and that's why she's there 
in this version, she initially acts like she doesn't know that she's dead. And she has to be told. And she's surprised by it. But then you get the impression that she comes back because she wants to screw over Charles, who she thinks is a bad person. Because he's not a real writer. I don't know. So There's just so much to unpack here because it feels so... Convoluted? Convoluted, yeah. I, I don't like doing work for any piece of media that it's not going to do for me. We're doing so much work here. <laughs> but the one thing that came to my mind, which is from the not viewer's perspective, so you right. can correct me if I'm wrong... I feel like there is a universe in which you can imagine these characters, let's abstract them from Blythe Spirit. Sure. And, you know, this man wants to be a writer. He's a struggling writer. His wife feels bad that he is not accomplishing anything, sees this little-known series, thinks, oh, I'm sure this won't hurt anything. And then in order to help him get the career that he wants, mm -hmm. plagiarizes the books without telling him and he and kind of ghostwrites his books for him. Good pun, accidental. <laughs> I can see that happening in a loving way. You are making it sound like the only way to read it in this movie is a malevolent way. No, I think you're right. Okay. I, I think there could be a shift that occurs when she comes back as a spirit and realizes that Charles has remarried and she feels slighted by that and by the fact that he's no longer interested in being with her. And so she decides to enact her revenge. I, I think that is definitely a way to read it. In fact, that may well be the way that it's meant to be read but it isn't really clear because her character isn't particularly well-developed. You don't really get a sense of who she is. What you do get a sense of is that Charles is not meant to be liked. And you're supposed to feel angry at the way that he manages to take advantage of and slight both of his wives. And so you're supposed to, I think feel this wonderful sense of feminine revenge against the dumb husband. Which, to me, is just so blah. Like, it, 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 it doesn't do anything for me. It has no resemblance to real relationships or real life, in my experience. And because it lacks that feeling of believability. I don't feel any so sense of uh, joy or sense of justice in the, the ghosts killing Charles. Right. Well, also, it, what sounds... And I want to never think about this movie again. Are you sure you're not going to go watch it after this? But um, a thing that comes to my mind is, you know, in theater, one of the central things you focus upon in any given production is objective intention tactic. Yes. And it feels like the 2020 film doesn't 
want any of the characters to have reasonable objectives. It feels like Charles's only objective is to make this movie, which is a very limp thing to drive a character forward. Unless <laughs> you said limp. Yeah. Unless you're going to put that in a context where they have to go to great lengths to get the movie made, you know, and that's not what Blythe Spirit is ever about. Very quickly in the play, his novel falls out of everything. It stops mattering. Well, you certainly believe that he wants to maintain his current relationship with his wife. I I mean, I would say, having seen the 2020 version, that certainly his objective is to get this movie made and to gain notoriety as a writer. And it isn't clear that he has any interest in making his marriage work. It isn't even clear that he has any interest in his wife at all. And so I think that's another messy aspect of this new version of the script is you get the impression that the only person who wants to make the marriage work is Ruth. And you don't really know why, because even Mrs. Bradford doesn't want to make the marriage work. No, she She wants her to cheat. Right. Um, So I I don't know if it's a more cynical reading of marriage. I, I don't even know if the, writers know i i don't know if they really if they had really thought it out it wouldn't read as sloppy as it does right i mean maybe putting a cap on this i feel like if we're looking at this as an attempt at feminist storytelling what they've decided is feminist is misandry they've decided that in order to make blithe spirit more feminist Mm -hmm you have to make the male characters lose and be detestable. And what is so interesting to me about that is that the cast of Blythe Spirit, women outnumber men. It also passes the Bechdel-Wallace test. Mm -hmm. Women talk about something other than a man with one another. And we'll talk about the possibilities of lesbian desire in a bit, which I'm very excited about. Um. (laughs) So it just becomes so much more performative that, mm-hmm. like, well, let's make the men just garbage, horrible people you cannot stand and make the women win by taking them out in the end. Woo! It, it just so doesn't make sense because I feel like if you make the love interest completely unlikable, you're also insulting the taste of the women. Yeah. Like, why? why would these two supposedly strong women both be pining over this shitty guy. Right. Maybe you could read it as like, yes, we have both made terrible choices about men in the past and now we see each other and we're going to team up and kill this one. But I still think that's really lame. So yeah, what I'm seeing here is like ghost kill bill. Yeah. Which like, Some of these things could be really interesting in their own story. The problem is that they didn't make their own story. They took an existing one, gutted it, (laughs) and now are trying to masquerade that this is the same thing. And let me tell you, it just falls flat. Like, no matter what the contents are, the way that it feels to watch this film 
is just flaccid and unbearable. <laughs> just like Charles. Just like just like Charles. I'm going to be quick about this because I don't want to belabor the point. Um, but there are a few other things that I thought you would appreciate that really bothered me. Changes that did not have to be made and that perhaps we can tie into some of our later discussion of the original play. First of all, the tone. When I say that this film was difficult to watch, part of it was that the tone was just all over the place. You never knew who you were supposed to like or dislike. You never knew exactly what emotions you were supposed to be feeling toward characters. <laughs> um, <laughs> there, there is a little montage after Ruth dies where they play this sentimental kind of Pixar-like jazz tune with like a, a crooning voice. Mm-hmm. And uh, Charles is, you know, deeply feeling her death, but you totally don't believe it because you've never seen any sort of true affection between them in the entire film. I miss you. I miss us. I miss us too. Um, and I, I think I've kind of mentioned this, that Ruth is generally kind of cold and fussy and out of touch with her husband. And we're supposed to feel bad for her when Elvira wreaks havoc, but you just don't because she's never given you a reason to feel bad for her. Also, they took out Madame Marcotti's racist comments about Indians, and instead they gave her this Indian guy in a turban as a sidekick in her magical show who doesn't really have much of a role other than to be in her show. Is that supposed to be better? <laughs> because <laughs> uh, I don't, that's all I'm going to say about that for now. So those are just my little other bits and bobs. I don't know why they chose to make those changes. I feel like I would love to be in this writer's room and just watch all of this go down because, like, who... <sighs> who approved any of this? Who said it was okay? Who thought who that laughed? these were good ideas? Somebody laughed. Somebody, they read this. I, they sat around a table before <laughs> this went into production and I'm... read this, and everybody in the room was like, yeah, that's funny. Let's go. Okay. So that is my uh, tirade um, on Blythe Spirit Spirit 2020. That's right. Yeah. Um, Thank you for giving me the space to express myself. Um, You know, I I just, I really had some things to work through. And um, I think. And you had to inflict them upon me. Right. Because that's what a healthy friendship is all about. That's what a healthy podcast is all about. That's right. Um, So I'd like to take a break and pee. Let's take a pee break, and then we will come back and speak a little bit more about spiritualism, about cultural context, about monster theory, all that wonderful stuff. I assume that the pee break isn't being kept in. Need a helping hand, I will understand.
and we are back after a short break. So, I have always been very skeptical about the prospect of a film adaptation of Blythe Spirit. Because with my intense interest in theater, I find that the specificity of the medium can often be a real barrier in making a worthwhile film. I think that's really interesting. And and you mentioned this to me when I said that I wanted to watch and review the the film adaptations. Um, And I hadn't even really thought about it. But I I think it reflects upon the sort of jaded and... uh, Like almost like an imperialistic, like we're just going to take what we want and do what we want with this thing. Yeah, um, I, I think it's I think it's like a combination between the uh, sort of jaded expectation that anything can be a movie and that's where we've moved to now. Um, And also just the refusal of writers and directors to believe that anything couldn't be a movie. Um, But I, I I now agree with you and we'll talk more about it. But to me, I I thought, well, why, why couldn't they make it a movie? Like the, Anything. I I kind of just um, blindly believed in that. Anything can be a movie. Um, But now I'm starting to think, having seen the movies, having seen a live production of the play, and having read the script, there's something that's more exciting about being in a live audience with live actors when it comes to this particular play so do you want to talk about why you think that is so i don't want to go too deep on the theoretical stuff we've gone so theoretical in our first couple episodes but i do want to give a little bit of a foundation for where i'm coming from i'm sure most people have heard the the um quote from oh god McLuhan: the medium is the message yes and I've already said that I have this feeling that things are turned into movies without thought of what gets lost in that process. Mm-hmm. I also think that when approaching the theater, you need to have a reason that this thing has to be on stage. What compels mm. this story to be told in this specific manner where we have live people and live people and some of them are audience and some of them are performers that creates this very specific semiotic equation that I think needs to be dealt with in the work. That's so interesting. So it goes both ways. It's both, you know, what do you lose when you make it into a movie that might make it not worth creating a film at all, but also what do you gain by seeing it live? Yes. And so what really changed my... Uh, line of thinking about this was an article by Robert Nunn talking about the differences in semiotics. And semiotics is the study of meaning making in a nutshell. He's talking about the differences between semiotics on screen, semiotics on stage. And what he says is that the stage is presence masquerading as absence. And on the screen, there is absence masquerading as presence. So what I mean by that is when you are watching a play, you are in 
the space with these performers, but you are pretending that you're not there. You are pretending that you're in the room with them, seeing this real thing unfold before your very eyes, and pretending that you're not actually there, or they're not actually there, that this is just a story. And then with a movie, you are in a theater or at home, pretending like... Patterns of light. Patterns of light are actual people with real lives and emotions and stories uh, pretending that they are there with you yes that is exactly what he's saying wow so in the context of ghosts and this is something that i'm obsessed with you typically have two and a half decision or (laughs) (laughs) i don't know where you're going with this i'm really intrigued so in the context of ghosts you pretty much have two and a half options to choose from when you're representing them on stage you either typically are going to have an actor on stage pretending to be a ghost that everybody else is pretending that either they can't see or can't interact with Mm -hmm. you're going to have nobody on stage pretending to be the ghost and everybody else is pretending to see and interact with this ghost that is not being played by anybody And then the half option is when you start getting into special effects. Um, Wow. So basically, when you're in person seeing Blythe Spirit, you have this really complicated relationship between the actors and each other and the actors and the audience and how we are supposed to be reading the actors' performances. And that's just interesting. It's inherently cool. Right. And it changes. So first... Elvira appears and only Charles can see her. Mm-hmm. And so we have this situation where actors are on stage with the actor playing Elvira pretending not to see her while the actor playing Charles is the only one who sees her. Mm-hmm. Then Ruth dies, Ruth appears, but only Elvira can see her and the audience can't. Mm-hmm. When that scene happens at the end of that act, It's just Elvira playing with no scene partner. Yeah. And then (laughs) at the end, Ruth shows up, then they get exercised, and now nobody sees them, but everybody sees effects of them. And I thought that was just so wonderful when I was reading the script. I, I was just thinking about what that would entail for the people putting on the production and just the the idea that the finale, this sort of uh, almost like fireworks show finale happens where things are being thrown across the stage and everything's moving. And I just imagine in person that being so exciting. Right. When I was listing those five aspects from Bill Ball, spectacle. That's where we find spectacle in Blythe Spirit. We find it in the seance and we find it in that final scene. And it's especially fun because earlier on you see Elvira walk around Mm -hmm. carrying the vase and Ruth unable to see her. So you have to pretend, you have to make this in your head what Ruth is seeing to make sense of it. And that one-sided screen, so to speak, is really fun. 
Right. On the other hand, in the movies, we've kind of gotten past the excitement of seeing cinematic effects. Even by 1945, the idea of something floating across the room on screen, not particularly thrilling or impressive. You know, it'd be pretty easy to hide uh, a string or something like that. Or to do it in post in some way. Right. There's just there's just so many ways that we have accepted that special effects can be done in, in cinema. And it doesn't take a lot of work on our part. Um, not to mention something that was done, I think, in both adaptations was kind of the trick of using Charles's point of view and Ruth's point of view. And when they were showing the camera angle from Charles's point of view, you would see Elvira, and then it would cut to Ruth's point of view, and she would be gone, but the scene would continue. The work is kind of done for you. And that's a good solution, I will say. It is clever. It's it at works. least using the medium of film. Because right. in my head, when you tell me that you're doing this on film... I just think that so much of what you gain in person is immediately lost. Right. What I also want to bring up is there's one more unseen character, which is Daphne, Madame Arcati's control. Mm-hmm. And what's also really fun and also going to be specific to the stage, typically in film, you do not have one actor play multiple roles. Right, unless you're David Lynch. Yeah, or um, Tilda Swinton in Suspiria. Right. <laughs> um, in stage productions of Blythe Spirit, Daphne does eventually speak. Mm-hmm. Everybody is on stage except for one character. Mm-hmm. So unless you want to go the more tech route and record somebody beforehand, which I think would really shortchange the production, that is Edith's job. Edith, offstage, recites Daphne's lines. Ah. And that creates a really interesting dynamic because, to some degree, even if it's not conscious in the audience's minds, you are foreshadowing Edith's role in the seance. And I think that that's a really clever thing. And when you think about if you, if you back up and you think about this from, like, a Shakespeare perspective, you know that when he is writing these things, <laughs> there are actors who are double cast. There are actors who are cross-dressing. And he works that into the script. He makes jokes about those things, right, in Shakespeare. Yeah. And Coward, I think, as, again, a lifelong theater person, when he wrote this, I think intended that Edith would deliver those lines so I think it's also a symbolic thing that he's done. Right. And it, it doesn't work the same outside of the context of the spectacle of being in person in a theater. Right. Because even if if I cast an actor in the movie of Blythe Spirit to play Edith and we have her go in the booth and record lines for Daphne, that doesn't matter. No matter how, like, unless her voice is very recognizable, it doesn't matter to you and because on a film there can always be dozens to dozens of people unseen right you're not going to do that math you're going to have to figure it out over imdb or when you're watching the credits well if you are sitting in 
a crowd and you think that you have seen all of the actors on the stage and you hear a voice that you're not expecting to hear, you're immediately going, hmm, did they get, who's, who said that? Right. Did, did, did they, is, is that one of the actors? Do they have another actor? Is someone going to appear later? You, you are, like you said, doing the math. Well, and you've seen Edith. She's in the first scene. There are only so many people listed in the program. So you might do that deductive work. And then at the end, when you find out that she is the actual medium. It's an aha moment. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, I, and so we're talking about presence and absence. And the other thing to think about with presence and absence is who is present, who is absent, the living and unliving. Yes. And so what Coward is doing here is playing with it in a theatrical way the literal who is here who is not here who do we see who do we not see that plays off of what's going on in the story you know who is present even after death who is not present how do we (laughs) negotiate that and i mean also if you think about the classic seance line is there anybody with us right yes so that was just but as charles would say in the 2020 film no no So that was something that I was really excited to get into about this. Yeah. I I think it's really interesting to find an example of a play that insists upon being performed live. I don't think it's impossible to make a good movie of Blythe Spirit. We haven't really seen that happen yet, but we've talked about why that is. Um, And at the same time, I know from having seen it performed that it's just different. Right. In addition to the questions of presence and absence, which are very exciting to me, another reason that I was interested in directing it all those years ago was when I learned about the real-life backstory behind Blythe Spirit. So Noel Coward was actually inspired to write Blythe Spirit based on the lived and unlived experiences of the famous lesbian poet Radcliffe Hall, who was a close friend of Coward's. So Radcliffe Hall met singer Mabel Batten in 1907. They entered into a relationship and they lived together until 1915 when Radcliffe Hall met Mabel Batten's cousin, Una Vincenzo, Lady Truebridge. Um, It's also worth noting that Lady Truebridge was a renowned sculptor in her own right. She was not... Just the cousin? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, in 1916, one year later, Batten died of a stroke, and Hall and Truebridge moved in together. Scandalous. I think a year later. A year after she died, maybe. So now we've had an affair going on. Mm-hmm. I see where this is going. And they feel guilty. So following the death of Mabel Batten, Radcliffe Hall and Lady Truebridge became interested in spiritualism. They employed the medium Gladys Osborne Leonard to perform seances where Leonard's control, who was an Indian woman named Fida would contact the spirit of Mabel Batten. They held these seances for years. What I was reading, I think, said that they had them almost on a weekly basis. 
And eventually they published a 215-page account of their spiritual experiences with the Society for Psychical Research. Which, of course, you read every page of in preparation for this podcast. It was behind a paywall. Ah, darn. Well, what happened next? So, I mean, uh, what happened next is that Noel Coward wrote by the Spirit. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Yeah. So, um, there's a book by Terry Castle called Noel Coward and Radcliffe Call. Damn it. (laughs) (laughs) Radcliffe called. So there is a book by Terry Castle called Noel Coward and Radcliffe Hall, Kindred Spirits, which is about the ways that each one influenced the other's writing. And he really makes the case for how Blythe Spirit was an adaptation of Radcliffe Hall's experiences. Mm. So I think with the context of this lesbian source material that's going to open us up to some more avenues of thought as we discuss what the ghosts mean in Blythe Spirit. And we, of course, are going to use the seven theses to start this discussion, beginning with the ghost is a cult, or the monster, but the ghost is a cultural body. So... Um, Blythe Spirit is a play. But also, beyond that, it... it, (laughs) (laughs) So, with regards to the cultural body, Blythe Spirit is a play, but also it exists within the canon of ghost plays. So you can understand it within a context. And you can think about the question of what in the culture is haunting this text. What does Elvira represent as the ghost of this text? And so we've kind of touched on a lot of these themes already, but the first couple of things that I think of are marriage, also the idea of moving on, and memory memory and, and guilt around a second marriage or around moving on from a previous relationship romantic or otherwise and i think that will bring us into thesis two the monster always escapes yes ghosts return from the dead more enter the play even after the exorcism their presence continues on it persists um yeah so because also if we're talking about ghosts as a monster in by the spirit we're not just talking about elvira we're also talking about ruth right and there's other monsters we can talk about that i want to get into but Mm -hmm. let's start here yeah with our main ghosts so then category crisis what binaries is elvira on the threshold of should i should i do a little uh lightning yeah lightning round okay alive or dead Present or absent, corporeal or incorporeal, together or apart, past or present, skepticism or belief, monogamy or polygamy. Which leads us to the gates of difference. What other does the ghost represent here? All of our ghosts are women, in contrast to Charles's maleness. They're also spouses or life partners. So, like, if I am I, my spouse is an other from me. Mm -hmm. And then there's the ultimate us versus them, which is the living versus the dead. That's, like, 
<laughs> the major difference. And if we're thinking about the ways in which Ruth and Elvira are othered now that they have passed on and now that they're ghosts, right. they have no agency. Right. And and you can see throughout the play that Elvira is is annoyed by her subhuman treatment yeah. when she has passed over. She wants the same amount of respect as Ruth. And so how about the borders of the possible? The cultural mores that we're questioning here. The astral bigamy yeah. of Charles. How right? many partners is it acceptable for you to have? And does that change with life or death? How do we negotiate attachments to the people who are no longer around us? How is... How appropriate is it for me to still feel attached and how attached is too attached? Right. Are you supposed to remain faithful in a marriage? Even, always. Always, even after the death of the partner. Um, and then what does faithfulness in a marriage entail? Does it mean that you stay a, a widow your life long after they pass away? Or do you find someone else to shake your sheets? <laughs> Does that bring us to number seven? Yeah. Fear. Wait, six. Oh. <laughs> Whoa, I skipped over fear. I don't like fear. Okay. Does that lead us to number six? I think it does. Uh, fear is a kind of desire. Oh, boy. That is potent in this play. Charles is simultaneously terrified of Elvira and also wants her to run her breezy fingers through his hair, right? There's also the desire to maintain a relationship even after the partner has passed to the other side. Yeah, and the way I was phrasing it in our notes was after its expiration date. Because mm. I think you can also imagine Blythe Spirit as allegorical. You could see Elvira as just being an ex. Right. And that wouldn't, while it would cheapen the narrative, of course... If you think about how a person is going to apply these anxieties and the logic of the story to their life, that's a little bit, well, not more practical, I suppose, but it's another practical application. And so it's even just begging the question of, do you want to, can you maintain this relationship after it's over, whether that's because you've broken up or because it should be over? Right. And I think that also applies to Ruth and Charles, because they're kind of trying to decide where they stand in their marriage. Yeah. Um, well, also, I mean, I will say that in giving Madame Arcati her tragic backstory, <laughs> we do raise the question again of when is it appropriate to love? She has this passed on love. Right. This hanging on to devotion. And then you also don't see any particular tenderness between the Bradfords. And mm -hmm. so all of the relationships here kind of beg the question of, like, do we take for granted that these are relationships and that they're worth maintaining and that they're good, that right. they should continue? Right. There's a fear of the relationship falling apart, but there's also a fear of figuring out how to make it work. Yeah. There's definitely this overlap of fear and desire when it comes to romance within the context of a marriage. And so the seventh thesis, which will really bring us into the next aspect of our discussion, the threshold of becoming. What we learn about ourselves through the monsters of Elvira and Ruth, 
We love sometimes when it isn't appropriate. We fear losing a partner, but we also fear losing independence. Mm -hmm. And that the conventions of marriage can be stifling. Aha. So that brings us to the critique of marriage that is inherent in this play. um, And also the parody of heterosexuality, because these two things really go hand in hand. Marriage is or has been held as like the ultimate expression of normativity, of heteronormative culture. In fact, I wrote in my notes a quote from Female Trouble, John Waters' Female Trouble. So Aunt Ida says to her nephew in Female Trouble, The world of heterosexual is a sick and boring life. Okay, that is so good. I mean, of course it is. It's John Waters. She is, she's expressing, she's worried that her uh, nephew might be straight. And she's, you know, talking about how she's worried that he's going to um, have children. And I worry that you work in an office, have children, celebrate wedding anniversaries. And yeah, ultimately she says, it's a sick and boring life. And I, that kept coming up for me when I was watching or when I was reading this play. I think that that links exactly to the thinking that I was having about Noel Coward. The journey that I went on was having seen this so long ago, read it so long ago, heard about Radcliffe Hall so long ago. The thing that I thought that was queer about this was that lesbian backstory. Mm -hmm. And now that I look at it again, and I also want to say that my dear friend Odessa helped me on this path when we were talking about a while ago, is the idea that Noel Coward is bringing into question what relationships are okay to have, Mm -hmm. which is a perspective that is going to be a lot more deep coming from a queer man in the 20th century. Yeah. And when you look at his other works, when you look at Private Lives and Design for Living, you see as I think I said before, these couples that fancy themselves as stable, but they are anything but, but that has to be revealed. That is not something that is ever addressed, like, straightforwardly. It has to come out through the cracks as they approach whatever trying situation. And also, he toys with romantic structures outside of strict heterosexual monogamy, So Designed for a Living has these two men in love with the same woman, and what they end up doing kind of is just taking turns. Right. It's interesting because when I first started talking about marriage as like the symbol of heterosexual stability, I almost wanted to pause and say, you know, well, it's not in anymore, but At the same time, I do think that as an institution, it has long been this band-aid for the stability of a relationship and the symbol of social acceptance. It made me think about how we often view marriage as a more stable and respectable version of a monogamous relationship than other types of relationships. And I also think what I've always said is that 
a major aspect of queer life when you look into queer history and you when you look into biographies of queer people you will often mm-hmm. see people bouncing around from partner to partner you will see concurrent relationships that don't seem to be mutually exclusive with one another and obviously that is again not even exclusive to queer life but when you have to question these are the feelings i'm having this is the uh, gender toward which I realize I'm attracted, and that breaks down so many of the social rules, the social mores, right. that then all of them come into question. Yeah. And I think that that just is really what opens up Coward to write this play and the other plays in his work. Mm-hmm. What he's questioning here does revolve a lot around widowing and remarrying. But it does kind of turn in, again, yeah, the astral bigamist that both Ruth and Elvira are aware of Charles's other relationship. Right. But they can't coexist when they're forced to share him. Right. Yeah, and uh, I think both Ruth and Charles at the beginning really are trying to play it cool. They have a lot of performative conversation about how mature they are and about how they've been through it all before and nobody needs to express their love in any sort of over-the-top manner, which I thought was really interesting um, because it seems like they're signaling to each other that everything is fine, even though perhaps there is a longing for something more romantic, but they're... You know, people often do that when they are feeling insecure about something. They'll they'll talk about how great and fine everything is. And you see a lot of signaling from both Ruth and Charles at the beginning of the play that we're mature, our marriage is solid, we're doing great. And you almost want to believe them because they do have a, a good rapport. Right. They're able to really take it on the chin. Anything mm-hmm. that they say to one another that is an insult in that conversation, they both know that it's only in jest, that it doesn't actually reflect how they feel about one another. Right. So in some ways, it is a true sign of maturity. But at the same time, when it gets more complicated than that, the lifeboat of marriage... It begins to sink. Right. It doesn't hold up. Right. And also, I mean, we have to think about the fact that we learn later on that Charles and Elvira were not faithful to one another. <laughs> right. And that they both seemed to be somewhat aware of it, but neither seemed to be aware of the gravity. Mm-hmm. What I think also like really sells this as an intentional parody for me Captain Bracegirdle? <laughs> like, the other names up until that point were, like, <laughs> upper-class British names, but they seemed reasonable. And then I got to Bracegirdle, and I was like, okay, now you're fucking with me. And that's, by the way, the man with whom Elvira, Elvira was having an affair. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's it's really silly, And at a moment that could be extremely shocking and sad and painful, it really brings humor into the truth. Yeah. What also was coming to mind when you were talking about one of the movies is that there's a point at which 
Charles's attitude towards the women in his life takes a turn toward the my bitch wife kind of stereotype in a way. Yeah. Where he is so willing to just think the worst of them so quickly and and make it really about how he's stuck with them. He becomes the victim. Yeah. In his own mind. Right. Which I also really like that at some point hysteria is brought up, I think, in relation to Madame Arcati. Uh-huh. When Charles is the hysterical one. God. Ruth has this monologue where she makes a case for every woman in Charles's life trying to dominate him in some way or other. Uh-huh. And he counters that she's the only one who's ever tried to dominate him, which is also in a scene in which she's trying to find the the psychological reason for why he is seeing Elvira's ghost. It's just so interesting when you are aware of monster theory. The the dominating monster is haunting the background of this conversation about women dominating him in his life. Right, and that it must be something psychological. This might be coming from some anxiety that you're having, something wrong with your brain that's manifesting as Elvira, which, (laughs) that's monsters, baby. Right. Well, and I think that also comes from the play's connections with spiritualism and, and playing with the idea of a medium, because it goes back to that idea of, is the science debunking the ghost, or is the science confirming the ghost? And I think we see examples of attempts at both with Madame Arcati uh, representing the spiritualist. We're using a method and we do this, this, and this, and that gets us to the ghost. And then Ruth, the skeptic, trying to psychoanalyze her husband. And that's also interesting because um, another one of my favorite monster theory books, Monsters in the Closet, mm-hmm. he breaks it down decade by decade more or less. And in the 40s, the trend that he sees in monster movies and in queer-coded monster movies... Let me guess. Psychoanalysis? Yes. Ah, well, I mean, it was... There was a huge blooming of that industry at the time. And you can really see that in Cat People. If you need an example, go watch Cat People. (laughs) Going back to spiritualism... Yeah. Spiritualism is female dominated or at least perceived to be in Mm -hmm. this period and so our two of our other characters have power that men don't have Mm -hmm. i mean whether or not arcadi has any genuine mediumistic prowess i think is up in the air i think that you're supposed to know she didn't do this but i'm willing to believe that maybe she's done anything with her seances yeah i don't know I agree, though. I think it is left yeah, to our imagination. Yeah, or at the very least, she is still a figure who represents a woman with that sort of power, whether or not she actually has it. Mm-hmm. And Edith, and we're going to talk about Edith more in a second. Um, we don't talk about Edith. No, no, no. But Edith, our servant, also represents a power that only women can have. And so while I wouldn't go so far as to say that the mediums in this play are monsters, you could definitely do some work to connect them and the way that they're treated by the men to witches and what have you, and what it means when a monster is a woman who has too much power. Yeah, and I mean, 
most, as you've said multiple times, most of the cast are women. It's definitely not a stretch to consider how female or feminine power haunts this play. Yeah. And as we were about to turn to what you wanted to talk about with regards to Edith and class, I do want to end the discussion of marriage with the fact that I don't think that Noel Coward is being entirely cynical with regards to marriage. I think he is showing how weak of a structure it can be. But I do think that he has a certain amount of faith in love. In the last act of the play, in the last scene of the play, Madame Arcati says, Love is a strong psychic force, Mr. Condamine. It can work untold miracles. A true love call can encompass the universe. And while she's talking about him summoning the ghosts of his late wives, I do think that we can expand this beyond that and see that he did really love them. They might not have had the means to have the best relationships. Right. But that love is still important. Love is still real. It's worth investing in love. Right. And perhaps the structures of marriage even interrupt that love. And that's maybe what is causing some of this repressed, haunted... Yeah, the anxieties. Yeah, anxieties, yeah. And so another anxiety that I felt was very strong in this play has to do with class structure. English writers are particularly good at recognizing the hauntings of class because England has such a regimented class structure. And even to this day, you don't have the narratives in England that you do in, say, the United States about the rags to riches story right and when you do it's an aberration like Pygmalion. right there isn't this celebrated idea of somebody from the perceived lower class making their way up to the upper classes Um, and there's so much literature that revolves around um, the impossibility of ever truly making your way there when i think about class in blithe spirit I certainly think about how the play revolves around characters of the upper classes. And in some ways, just like it parodies marriage, it parodies the social norms of the rich, even from the way that they communicate with each other and the way that they are using drinks to cure everything like it it, everybody seems so tied up in expectation tied up in their own comfort and of course we have edith who is one of the working class working for the family in the house and she is the one who can secretly channel the dead Right. So it brings up this anxiety of the people who are you are employing and probably not paying enough coming to get you later. <laughs> well, and those people 
having power that you don't have. Right. So maybe this is on my mind and my interpretation of this because I just started watching The Nanny. Oh. But I'm thinking about how in the beginning, Edith doesn't know how to be a functional servant. Mm -hmm. And it makes me think of... It also is making me think of Amelia Bedelia. <laughs> Let's bring more theory into this, right? Defamiliarization. Taking something that is normal, that everybody recognizes, and then depicting it in a way that is bizarre and absurd that makes you realize how abnormal that concept is. Mm -hmm. So Edith has to have it explained to her, don't run everywhere. <laughs> Like, just because you're at our beck and call doesn't mean that you have to throw safety and decorum out the window. Decorum is actually very important, right? Right. And in my opinion, I think it brings the question of why? Why does she have to serve these other people? Why do they need these things done by this other person subservient to them? Who they actually have to train and explain things to as well. Right. Like they, so they, they know how to do supposedly it. Supposedly, they are so much more capable, and yet... So then when you add to that situation the idea that Edith is not good at being a servant, but she is functional at being a medium, <laughs> yes. even if she doesn't know how yet... It really shows, like, well, why is she in those circumstances? Why does she have to do this while they do that when she can do these crazy paranormal things? Right. She has this amazing power that she can't even conceptualize harnessing because of her social status. Right. And then also... And it's less apparent, but we do have some class tension with Madame Arcati. Mm -hmm. She is not as well off as the Condamines or the Bradfords, reminding you that Dr. Bradford is a doctor. She has to make this living. She, Though her lines of work are abnormal, I would say she is of the working class. She is writing novels to supplement her medium profession. And she's riding her bike everywhere. Yes. Although it seems like that is by choice. Like it's some sort of quirk. So perhaps she's not too she's not too poor to have a car. She she falls in that strange sort of in between I say strange in between, like I'm not a middle class person. But, but she is she, riding her bike and even if it's by choice, it still has the optics. Of right. her not driving or being driven. If she were playing the game of high society, she would not be caught on a bicycle. Right. And also, she has all of these trappings of not-whiteness. Mm. She is several times described as dressing in a barbaric manner. She's definitely an orientalist in certain ways. She definitely does have these trappings of the mystical East going on, which, as we've spoken about before, was present in spiritualism. Yet, she also has these feelings about people living in India. She's an imperialist in her own sort of way. Yeah, she's she, colonizer. She is trying to um, write these biographies of 
ancient. Is it ancient or is it deceased? It's royalty. So it's European. She's trying to write these biographies of European royalty. You could see that as class ascension in a way, associating herself with these people. At the same time, she's kind of the joke of the writing circle. Charles mentions that people are looking at her writing with a lack of respect. Yeah. And so also you can see a certain attempt at maybe not social mobility, but at least bettering one's status when you put somebody else down. Mm -hmm. So at the time of writing, India was still under British rule, which then would make, you know, she might be working class in some definition of the word. She might be a woman, she might be older, but she is white. And obviously you could cast this other ways, but you're still going to have to in some way contend with her feelings, whether you cut those lines or change them somehow or give her an Indian sidekick. Because that fixes everything. (laughs) Um, Speaking of the 2020 film, one more time. um, If we have to. If, yeah, well... One of the reasons I think the 2020 film falls flat is because I would argue that it's not really gothic anymore, that the undercurrents that haunt the play are really brought to the surface in the 2020 version. I suppose you could still read it as a gothic story with monsters, etc., blah, blah, blah. But it's just not as interesting because so much is just, you know, men suck. Marriage is a problem. It's all a lie. Things that should be undercurrents, should be subtext subtext or anxieties that the characters have, things that you talk about when you leave the theater are just all kind of floating on the surface like an ugly trash bag. Uh, on or the water, an ugly ghost, or a trash bag ghost, and I think the same goes for class structures. There's a lot of really open commentary about, like, from Edith, and there's also a cook character who's added about their place in the house. It's pretty clear that they think their employers are buffoonish. On the other hand, in the play, this is something that you can consider, that you can think about with the character of Edith, but nobody is openly discussing how the class structure works because that's not how class structure works. It works because nobody talks about it. Nobody says, hey, Edith, if you have this special power, why don't you go follow your dreams? Why don't you use, uh, harness that energy to make a life for yourself? They're going, well, she's a maid and that's her place and nobody is going to ask about it and that's what makes it a haunting that's what makes it uncanny and i don't want to be too down on contemporary film but i think your sentiment that the 2020 film doesn't respect the audience and puts everything on the surface to -hmm. make sure that you don't miss it I do agree that that's antithetical to the Gothic, that the Gothic is about the emergence of the repressed and that they're taking this kind of 
2020 therapy speak where all of the characters have to say exactly how they're feeling and put all their cards on the table in a way that is so anticlimactic that it would be really hard to have any big budget movie be properly gothic in the contemporary cinema. There's nothing scary about something that is immediately seen. It needs to be in the shadows, at least for part of the performance or part of the media. You don't want to see the ghost for an extended amount of time right away. It just, it diffuses everything. So with that, we hope that we've shed some light on the specters floating through Noel Coward's Blythe spirit. If you would like to contact us from the other side, please find us on Instagram at Ghosts Were People Too. Or you can email us at gwp2pod at gmail.com. That's gwp2pod at gmail.com. If you want to read more, there will be sources in the show notes. And with that, we'll be loving you always. Always. And as it says on the Ouija board, goodbye. goodbye.